Well, I too love Alex and his family, and we are going to miss you, bro. Uh, it's, been, it's been a fun seven years together on staff. Um, well, I do want to say good morning to those of you uh, who are here with us this morning, and for those of you who are online. Um, I think I picked up Caleb's uh, kennel cough, um, so <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's why I'm going with the handheld today, in case I need to do one of these numbers. Um, but also, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this out because... Uh, Tom Short has promised me of the medicinal qualities of Mountain Dew uh, for a throat uh, that is not great when you need to preach. And so um, I may be taking a few sips of, of this disgusting stuff. Well, if you have a Bible, I'm going to go ahead and uh, invite you now to go ahead and open up to uh, Romans chapter 12. Um, we're going to be looking at quite a few passages this morning, but uh, Romans 12, 9 to 21 is going to be one of our main anchor passages, and I would like to read it uh, for us. Um, if you need to borrow a sanctuary Bible in front of you, uh, the passage is found on page 948. And, and once you find it, go ahead and stand um, as I read Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Um, I'm going to pray for our time, but also uh, want to uh, pray for what's going on in Israel right now. I, I don't know a lot of the details, but it looks like uh, there is a war and lots of people have already died and um, I think they're saying this is their 9-11 and, and uh, was a terrorist attack. And, um, and so join with me now as I both pray for our time together, but also as I pray uh, for that situation. Well, Father, we, uh, we do invite your Holy Spirit's presence into our time this morning. We ask that he would give us sensitive hearts to, uh, to hear and to heed and to obey the word of God. Father, we pray that Jesus Christ would be magnified in our time together, that we would see him and, and, and for all that he is and the glory and the beauty, we would worship him. And as we worship him, we would be changed into his image. And now, Father, we do pray for uh, Israel. Lord, our world is in such a fragile state right now. There's multiple wars happening around the world. Things are uncertain. Father, we need uh, your intervention. We need your help, Lord. We pray that uh, this war in Israel would end quickly and that you, the, the loss of life would be minimized. 
And so, Heavenly Father, please look down on, on humanity with compassion. Lord, we are literally destroying ourselves. We pray, Lord, I just think of John's words at the end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, we need you to come back and to right the wrongs and to remove sin and wickedness from this earth, Lord. And so we look to you, we ask you to intervene, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so uh, today we are finishing up our little three-part series on forgiveness. And I know that for some of you, this series has been helpful and encouraging. Um, however, though, I, I also know that for others of, you, others of you, it's been a real challenge. And it's been a challenge because it has brought up some past hurts that you would rather not think about again. Or maybe it's been a challenge because it has reminded you of that person in your life that you still need to forgive, but you really don't want to. Or maybe it's been a challenge because you felt like the first two weeks were too simplistic. And you're thinking to yourself, well, well that's great for you, Pastor Nick. I'm glad you, got, you had your nice little outline last week about what forgiveness is, but I don't think you really get it. You don't understand the complicated nature of the situation that I'm in. And look, if that is you, if that's how you feel, maybe I, I don't fully get it. Or maybe I don't really understand your situation, but I can empathize with the fact that this topic is difficult, that it's hard, that it's tricky. And that's why I opened up last week with that quote from uh, theologian Cornelius Plantango, who, again, I'm just going to read it again, said this, anybody who thinks hard about forgiveness will start a lot more rabbits than he can catch. The topic raises a whole nest of questions, and the good answers will seldom be the easy ones. And one of the things that makes this topic so challenging uh, and difficult to discuss is, uh, as Lisa Turkers points out in her book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, is this. She, she says, there are complexities that must be considered. There is no way to position forgiveness as simple when it is supposed to apply to instances that span the range of, of, of offense, from an inconvenience to a brutal murder. The cost of one is so minuscule in comparison to the magnitude of the other. And yet, the invitation to cooperate with the forgiveness of God spans across them both. And so because of this complex reality, I do want to just say up front this morning that there is no way in a single sermon or even in a couple of sermons that we could address all of the complicated nuances and difficult situations that could possibly exist, including yours. And not only that, but it's also true that I am uh, by no means an expert on this topic. I don't have it all figured out. However, though, my hope and my goal in even doing this series in the first place is that it would become a conversation starter in our community around this really important topic. As I said last week, this topic is at the very heart of our Christian faith and practice. And because of that, it's certainly a topic that you and I can't afford to avoid. And so again, my hope coming out of this series is that we will begin to have those hard conversations, whether it's in our life groups or around a dinner table or with a trusted friend or even with a professional counselor. 
You see, we may not get it all figured out in a three-week sermon series, but I do hope that this is a conversation that will continue in our community for a while because, as pastor and author John Tyson has said, he said, nothing drives the presence of God away like unforgiveness. I don't know about you, but I am desperate for the Lord's presence to dwell and to rest on this community and in this church. And so if Tyson is right, and I, I think that he probably is, then you and I, I, I want us to take steps to address the unforgiveness that still may exist in our hearts. Now again, I framed uh, last week's message as a kind of forgiveness 101, uh, whereas this week is perhaps what you might think of as forgiveness 201 where we're gonna to try to get into some of the more complicated uh, questions and nuances around it. And if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to it uh, because in that message, what I tried to do was to answer some basic questions around why we should forgive. And also I tried to define what exactly is this thing called forgiveness, which are both really foundational questions to answer. However, though, uh, for today, to try to wrap up uh, the series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three things, and this will be our outline this morning. We're going to look at, number one, misconceptions about forgiveness. Number two, we're going to look at some uh, miscellaneous questions around forgiveness. And then finally, we're going to look at marks of a mature and godly community. And so starting with that first one here, what are some common misconceptions about forgiveness? Well, um, I, I know I had you go to Romans 12, but if you could hold your place there and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18. Now, last week we looked at verses 21 to 35 about the unforgiving servant, um, but today I want to read right before that uh, in verses 15 to 17, which say this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so this is a, a, a very well-known passage. And it's one that people often associate with the idea of church discipline, and I think that's by and large right. However, though, I think this passage also corrects for us some misconceptions about forgiveness. For example, what we see here is that forgiveness is not ignoring or forgetting uh, what people have done to us. And perhaps you've heard the phrase, uh, forgive and forget. And certainly we know what people mean when they say that, and, and in some cases, that's not necessarily terrible advice. Um, for example, Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, is his glory to overlook an offense. And so because of that, perhaps there are some times where uh, someone offends us or does some kind of minor infraction against us, but it's not habitual, it's not a, a pattern that they have in their life. And so maybe in those cases, moving on and overlooking the offense is the best route to take. Now, I should say that overlooking an offense is not the same as forgetting, but it is making the decision to move forward without holding it against someone. However, though, what we just saw in Matthew 18 is that there are some sins and, and some offenses that are serious enough, particularly when they are obvious or intentional or grievous or habitual, 
And, and they're the kind of sins that damage the relationship itself. And therefore, in those cases, they cannot, nor should they be, overlooked. No, in those cases, if someone sins against us, we are not to ignore, we are not to forget, but instead we are to confront them. And so that would be one misconception that I think we can dispel. I think another misconception that this passage addresses is the misconception that forgiveness is condoning or excusing sin. Now, I did address this very thing last week, but let me just reiterate what I said. You see, there are some who are hesitant or who are suspicious even of pursuing forgiveness because they have been taught or they have been led to believe, excuse me, that forgiveness is excusing or condoning what happened to them. However, though, what we see here in Matthew 18 is that not only do we confront the person by going to them, but we also are told to show them their fault, as it says in verse 15. You see, by showing someone their fault, you are acknowledging that what they did to you was wrong and that it was not okay, and therefore you are not excusing it nor condoning it. I think a, another very common and, but dangerous misconception that people have about forgiveness is that forgiveness will somehow tolerate or allow further abuse. In other words, if you forgive someone who has abused you, it will lead to farther abuse. However, though, we know very clearly from the scriptures that all types of abuse are sinful and wrong. And therefore, when we look at Matthew 18, what we see is that there is a process for dealing with people who sin against us. You see, in commanding us to forgive, Jesus is not asking you to just take it. He is not saying it is fine for you to be a doormat for someone to walk on or to just suffer in silence. No, he very clearly lays out a process for dealing with sin, and in doing so, he builds in protection for those who are being abused by bringing others into the situation. Now, we'll get into that some more when we look at the question of reconciliation, but for now, let's just be really clear. Forgiveness does not mean tolerating or allowing further abuse. Another common misconception that is related to this is that forgiving someone, uh, that in forgiving someone, we are allowing the offender to escape the consequences of their sin. Or another way you could say it is that forgiveness is somehow opposed to justice. But that too couldn't be farther from the truth. And so let me just say this very crystal clear. Forgiveness does not mean that there are not still serious consequences to sin including things like relational boundaries or separation or even prosecuting someone and sending them to prison. You see, one thing that we've not said so far in this series that we probably need to, and you know, in that opening message, we talked about how forgiveness is fading from our culture, but, and we gave some reasons for that. But one reason we didn't give that we need to is this, because uh, one reason forgiveness is fading in our culture is because some Christians have taught and have practiced a jacked up and distorted version of forgiveness, including this twisted misconception here. I'm sure we are all aware of situations and scenarios where some Christian or some church leader either told someone that they needed to forgive the person who, uh, they, abused, uh, who they abused, and part of that forgiveness included not talking to the police or taking them to court. 
Or even worse, the, the leader covered up their own abuse by manipulating the person in some way, either convincing them that it was okay and that it wasn't abuse, or by convincing them to not talk about it. And unfortunately, we have all heard those kinds of terrible stories and scandals, and, and they are heart-wrenching and disturbing and demonic even. And they certainly aren't the way of Jesus or the teaching of the New Testament. You see, if someone commits a crime, we don't begin with church discipline. We begin by calling the police. Romans 13 says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which, is established, which God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no tear for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. If someone breaks a, or a crime or breaks the law or commits a crime, we don't handle it. We don't deal with it internally as a church. No, part of what it means to submit to governing authorities is to report criminal behavior. Again, forgiveness does not mean that there are not still serious consequences to sin, including criminal punishment. You see, forgiveness and justice are not opposed to each other. You can have both. Okay, so those are, are, are maybe four or five common misconceptions about forgiveness, and I am sure there are many others that, that I missed, but those are some important ones, I think, to address. Let's go to that next part in our outline, and that is this, miscellaneous questions about or around forgiveness. Well, just like with misconceptions, I won't be able to cover uh, all of the various questions that could be raised on this topic, but let me uh, try to tackle a few important ones. One of the first questions that I think we need to answer, and unfortunately, it's one of those questions that Christians disagree on, and that is this, does the Bible teach that forgiveness is to be conditional or unconditional? In other words, should we only forgive people who repent and ask for forgiveness, or should we forgive someone regardless of what they do or don't do? Okay, so let me just try to lay out for us now the two sides of the debate. And, and you should know up front that both sides have people uh, who represent them, who are Bible-believing Christians, who love the Word of God, and who love Jesus deeply. And so certainly this is not a sniff test for orthodoxy or heresy. In fact, as we get into it, you'll see that there's, at the end of the day, they don't disagree all that much. Basically, what the debate boils down to is how you define biblical forgiveness. You see, on one side, there are those who would say that the Bible teaches that forgiveness is conditional, meaning, again, we only forgive those who repent of their sin, and that the sole purpose of forgiveness is reconciliation or restoration of the relationship. Um, this side would look at a passage like Luke 17, 3, which says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
Now, certainly when you read that, uh, th those couple verses, it sure seems like forgiveness is conditional based on whether or not the person repents. Um, this side would also argue for their view based on how Christians receive forgiveness from God, which clearly requires that you and I repent in order to receive it. And so the logic goes, if forgiveness of God is conditional based on repentance, then why wouldn't forgiveness of others be on the same requirement? They would also point out that the goal of forgiveness uh, in, in, in terms of forgiveness from God to us is in order to be reconciled to him. And in the same way, that should be true in our relationship with others. Um, one main uh, proponent of this view is an author by the name of Chris Bronze, who in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, defines forgiveness this way. He says, forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. You see, what Bronze argues for in that definition is that Christians should be graciously willing to offer forgiveness to anyone. However, we only grant or give forgiveness to those who actually repent which then leads to reconciliation. I'm again quoting Bronze, he goes on and he says, Christian forgiveness is a commitment to the repentant. It is not automatic. Christians are to forgive others as God forgives, or as God forgave them. God's forgiveness is conditional. To be sure, God offers grace to all people, but he forgives only those who repent and believe. Think of it this way. Christians are called to offer a present to those who have hurt them. That package should be wrapped and tied with ribbon with a tag addressed to you regardless of what you've done. Forgiveness is what is found inside if the offender chooses to open the package. Forgiveness is inextric inextricably linked to reconciliation. When God forgives, he not only pardons sinners from guilt, he also begins a new relationship with them. The Bible never speaks of God's forgiveness apart from reconciliation. The assumption today seems to be that you can forgive someone but not be reconciled to them. This would be like leaving the gift on their doorstep, ringing the doorbell, and driving away never to return. But remember our foundational principle, we are to forgive others as God forgave them, as God forgave us, and God never forgives anyone without being reconciled to them. Wow, that's gross. Um, <laughs> woo! But it might give me some energy, so which would be good. Um, okay, so that's one side of the debate, the conditional forgiveness side. Now, in contrast to that, the other side would make a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, this side would argue that we can and we should forgive everyone who hurts us unconditionally, but reconciliation or uh, restoring the relationship can only occur if the person acknowledges what they did was wrong and repents. And so what we see here is that this side has a slightly different definition of what it means to forgive. Again, they separate out forgiveness from reconciliation. Now, people on this side would point to a passage like Mark eleven twenty five, where Jesus says this, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, clearly this passage makes no reference to someone needing to repent first in order for you to forgive them. 
In fact, it seems like you can forgive the person in your heart without them ever knowing uh, that, without them even knowing that you did it. As well, this seems like it makes space for you to forgive someone who is either dead or who you've lost contact with, which unfortunately the other view has no pathway for. You see, the image I think Jesus is painting here in this verse is, the, is of someone who is spending time in prayer. And as they are uh, beginning to pray, all of a sudden they realize that they have unforgiveness in their heart towards someone. And in that moment, as the Spirit brings conviction around that, I, I think what Jesus is saying here is that before you go on to continue to pray, you need to release that to God. But again, there's no indication here that that kind of forgiveness is conditional. It, it sure seems like something that you can just do inwardly in your heart before the Lord. You see, if you, look at, uh, if you just look at Luke 17... Or if you just look at Mark 11, what happens is you come away with this feeling that they are saying very different things. Luke 17 sure uh, seems to be arguing for conditional forgiveness based on repentance, whereas Mark 11:25 seems to be saying we can forgive someone regardless of their actions. And so, which is it? Well, in wrestling with this question, Tim Keller wrote this. He said, reading Luke 17 apart from Mark 11:25 has led many people to believe that no forgiveness is necessary until there is full repentance and restitution by the offender. On the other hand, Mark 11:25 can be, give the impression that forgiveness is something that happens completely in one's heart and can be completed in an instant. How can these two directives both be true? The answer is that the word forgiveness is being used in two somewhat different ways. And Mark 11, forgive them means inwardly being willing to not avenge oneself. And Luke 17, forgive them means, recon, uh, means reconcile to them. There is then a kind of forgiveness that's, uh, that ends up being inward only and another kind that issues outwardly toward a possible restored relationship. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but based on my reading of the New Testament, that sure seems to be the case. Um, later on in that same chapter, Keller goes on to differentiate uh, these two types of forgiveness by calling one attitudinal forgiveness and the other reconciled forgiveness. Um, Dr. Tony Evans, who holds a similar view to Keller, calls them unilateral forgiveness versus transactional forgiveness. Now, look, at the end of the day, I think a lot of this debate is down to semantics, and really, when you dig into both sides, I think you could argue that uh, they are saying essentially the same thing. They both agree that Christians have been commanded to forgive because they themselves have been forgiven, and they both agree that reconciliation can't happen without repentance. Which brings us to the second question that I want to look at, which is, what does reconciliation look like then? Well, to answer this question, I, I want to go back to that Matthew 18 passage that we looked at earlier. Um, I know we already read it, but let me just read it again here for this context. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so as we think about reconciliation, 
If you believe someone has wronged you or sinned against you, and in doing so between you, uh, there is now uh, relationally a barrier, what do you do? Well, again, as I said earlier, I think it's, uh, it's always good to assess first and to ask, uh, is this the kind of thing that warrants confronting someone and seeking out an apology, or is this a minor offense that I should just overlook and move on from? Well, there are perhaps no easy answers to give in order to know for sure if we should just overlook something or if we should confront it. But I would say that the more mature we are in Christ, the, the less sensitive and easily hurt we should become. However, though, at the same time, the more mature we are in Christ, the more willing we should be to confront someone when it is needed. You see, unfortunately, an immature believer will be both easily offended and they will often avoid conflict and not confront the one who hurt them. And instead, they will either cut off the relationship or just talk bad about them behind their back. <clears throat> and yet, as followers of Jesus, we are not to do either one of those. And so again, first step here would be to assess the offense. Now, if it is something that needs to be addressed, then the next thing that you do is to go and confront the person. Now, not always, but, but sometimes it may be really important for you to work through your own feelings and griefs about the situation first before you go to the person. In other words, it may be helpful to work through your own feelings of unforgiveness before you approach the person. Otherwise, your confrontation of them may turn into a kind of revenge. Because if you're still in that place of unforgiveness, you may end up saying things to hurt them, or you might exaggerate the, the offense. However, though, if you work through forgiving them internally first, then it may help you to confront them relationally in love. It'll certainly help you uh, be less reactive in the moment, particularly if they don't receive it well or if they end up uh, not acknowledging and repenting that what they did was wrong. And so again, step one, assess the offense. Step two, work through your own feelings until you are ready to forgive them. And then step three is go and confront them one on one. Now, one caveat uh, that I, uh, to this one-on-one -on -one principle that I want to mention before we move on is in cases of abuse. If your safety is in question at all, then I don't think you have to follow this pattern in Matthew 18 perfectly in order. It seems to me that these are general guidelines and principles, but if your safety is in question, then you should not approach the offender one-on-one, -on -one, and instead, you should take at least one other person with you, if not more, particularly if they know MMA or just buff, so uh, maybe Mike Failer or something. But um, now, again, all of the same things I said before still apply. If, if someone has broken the law, you should call the cops. But, but even still, I, I think we all know that these kinds of situations can be complex. There are many ways someone can abuse you or harass you, but not technically break the law. And in those cases, you'll still need to confront them. But again, it's probably wise to take along another person. And I think that that can be true even in cases of emotional abuse, particularly if you are dealing with someone who uh, may be a, a narcissist or who may have borderline or some other kind of personality disorder, because those types of people are often really good at manipulating others and gaslighting them. And, and so because of all of that, 
One thing that can happen is that you may go to confront the sin in their life and, and, and talk about what they did to you. And next thing you know, you leave and, you're convinced, and they've convinced you that actually you are the one who sinned, not them. And if you've never experienced that, I know it sounds crazy, but it actually happens and it can be very confusing and damaging. And so again, in those cases, having another person along who can potentially see through that would be helpful and could provide some protection. And so because of that, I did want to qualify that going one-on-one -on -one to confront someone may not always be possible or safe. However, though, those exceptions aside, what we see here is that the first thing you do is you meet with the person, and I think preferably face-to-face. -face. And what you do while you are together is you very clearly show them their fault. Or in other words, you explain to them how you think that they wronged you or sinned against you. Now at this stage, a couple of things to keep in mind are this. If there is anything on your end that you can own up to or apologize first, then you should start with that. You see, not always, but often in a relational conflict, both sides have something to apologize, before, uh, apologize for. Um, your part may only be 10% and there's 90%, but even still, start by confessing and asking for forgiveness for your part even if it is small. I think another thing to keep, uh, to remember, to keep in mind is, is this, how you say something is sometimes just as important as what you say. And so because of that, things like your tone of voice or your body language are also really important. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that you should work really hard to avoid language like you always or you never. Right? Like that sort of absolute language is not only unfair, but it's also just really unhelpful because it'll make the other person defensive. You also, I think, want to avoid exaggerating the offense or attacking the person rather than the problem. Now, obviously, there are many other tips and pointers one can mention in terms of approaching conflict resolution, but for time's sake, let's move on. And so, again, at this stage, you, you confront the person one-on-one, -on -one, you show them their fault. If they repent and acknowledge that what they did was wrong and they ask you to forgive them, then in that moment, you should extend grace and forgiveness to them. And in general, the relationship should be reconciled, although, as we've said before, that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be consequences or changes in how the relationship looks. And like I said last week, forgiveness is a gift but trust is something that is earned back over time. And so maybe you are reconciled, but trust is not yet fully restored. And so if that's where things end, then great. As Luke 17 says, then at that point, you have won back your brother or your sister. However, though, what do you do if they are convinced that they didn't do anything wrong? Or even worse, they, they know they did something wrong, but they just don't care and they're unwilling to repent. Well, the next step we see is that you are to take one or two others along with you in order to confront them. Now, what this step does is that it brings in some accountability to the situation because not only do you and them know what's going on now, but also so do some others. That's why it says in verse 16 that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, when you think of those people that you should uh, bring along with you, I, I think you would do well to pick people that both of you know and who are mature enough in the Lord to be as objective as they possibly can. 
In other words, don't bring a, a yes man or a yes woman who is already on your side of things and who therefore will be already automatically biased against the other person. I mean, look, if, if reconciliation is your heart motive and is the outcome that you desire, then don't pick someone that will make that harder. And, who, and, and certainly who we pick in those moments uh, as we go to confront someone could play a part in that. Okay, so what happens after this stage if they still don't repent? Well, this is when we are supposed to go and tell it to the church. Now, depending on how a church is governed, this may look differently in different churches. For example, our church is a elder-led church, and so in most cases, what this would look like is that those two or three witnesses would come to the elders and they would inform them of the situation. Presumably at that point, the elders would get involved and they too would confront the individual about their sin and they would investigate all sides of the story. Now, if they still don't repent, then that's when you would ask this person to leave the church as a form of discipline with the goal being that they would wake up to their sin and that they would repent and be reconciled to the person that they hurt and to the community. Now, it's possible part of that would include informing the entire church of the situation or at the very least key individuals who know the people that are involved. Now, I got to be honest, it's, it's so rare that we are actually able to get to this stage with someone who is unrepentant. And the reason for that is because they usually cut and run well before the elders get involved. Often these kinds of situations are very complex. They're always very sad. And many times the person being confronted just disappears to another church or often many times they just leave the faith altogether. And so what do you do in those kinds of scenarios where the person just leaves and disappears or, or another difficult question, what do you do if you are the one apologizing, but the person refuses to accept your apology and they refuse to be reconciled to you or, or perhaps trickiest of all, what do you do if the person uh, that has hurt you is a non-Christian? I mean, you can't exactly apply Matthew 18 and church discipline to a non-Christian, right? You imagine like going to your boss and being like, hey, I told my elders what you did and uh, <laughs> they're on their way here right now, buddy. You're, you're in a lot of trouble, right? It doesn't work like that. Well, there's one key verse. And as a pastor, I've already shared this verse because we, we or, 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 as a pastor, I've shared this verse dozens and dozens of times with people. And we already read it at the beginning, and that is Romans 12, 18, which says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I memorized it in the New American Standard years ago, um, although now that I'm on the spot, I might blank out here and not remember it, but I think it says, if, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. You see, that's such an important verse because what it does is it acknowledges that there are limits to reconciliation. It acknowledges that reconciliation takes two willing people, not just one. And so what that means practically for us is that you and I can and should do our part in order to have good and peaceful relationships with others. But we can only do that to the extent that the other person will allow us. 
In other words, if someone runs away or if someone cuts you off or they refuse to talk to you, what this verse is saying is that at that point, you are free to move on if you have done everything you can to try and make peace. And so this is a really important principle in all of this because unfortunately, those kinds of situations do happen and yet graciously, God gives us a way forward. Now, before we move on to the last part of our outline, let me just say a couple more things. The first thing I wanna say is that this process that is laid out for us in Matthew 18 does sound really easy and really straightforward. However, though, in practice, it's usually not that simple. And it's particularly complicated when you are talking about a marriage or a family relationship. You see, it's all one thing to treat a friend or a coworker or a neighbor even like a pagan and a tax collector when they don't repent. But how do you do that with a spouse? Or how do you do that with a parent or a child? Well, again, I can't answer every question or address every scenario that might possibly exist because, as you know, each situation is so complex and nuanced. And actually, just to be upfront, these kinds of situations and scenarios for us as pastors are some of the hardest to think through and to help shepherd someone through. There are not easy answers usually. I mean, usually when we dig into these kinds of questions, not only are the answers hard to come by, but it's, it's hard to even help uh, someone know what kind of decisions they need to be, uh, that they need to make. And as I said earlier, it's especially complicated when it involves someone with a mental disorder like narcissism or borderline or something else like that. And so look, for those of you who this series has been hard for, I, I don't want you to hear us as pastors saying that forgiveness is always easy and it's always straightforward. And therefore, if you are struggling with unforgiveness, then we're just going to shame you until you do it. No, that is not our heart. That is not at all what we are saying. What we are saying is that forgiveness is at the core of our Christian faith and practice and that it's something that you and I have been commanded to do. And therefore, even though our culture is turning its back on this critical aspect of our faith, we cannot follow suit. And so when it comes to challenging and complicated situations and scenarios involving forgiveness, we don't abandon this practice or forsake it, but rather we lean into the counsel and the comfort of fellow believers in order to help us begin to figure it out. We don't suffer in silence. We don't write off forgiveness as a cruel joke from a cruel God. Instead, we invite God himself and others into our pain in order to help us begin to move forward. And so let's move on now quickly to that last part in our outline, which is marks of a mature and godly community. Let's go finally now to that passage in Romans 12. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the book of Romans, you'll know that uh, for the previous 11 chapters, Paul has been expounding and explaining the gospel in great detail. In other words, he's been explaining in an incredibly complex detail the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and all that that means for us. And now starting in chapter 12, he makes a, a very intentional shift and he begins to talk about how in light of the gospel and, and all that that means for us, and in light of all this good news that Jesus has done for us, how then shall we live? 
And what we see is that in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so what we see here is that in light of the gospel, in light of this good news, that we have been saved and redeemed by God, now you and I are to present our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Not only that, but we also, as it says in verse 2, are to not be conformed by the world, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Now, there's so much that we could say about those two verses, but let me just quickly say here that the big idea is that in coming to Jesus through the gospel, you and I, we are signing up for a new way of life. And that new way of life will be very different from the world because God's will and God's ways are in direct contrast to the world's will and the world's ways. And so because of that truth, from there, Paul then begins to talk about what this new community of gathered believers is to look like for the rest of the chapter. In verses 3 to 80, uh, 3 to 80 he talks about different spiritual gifts that God has given to the church. But then starting in verse 9, he says this. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Or, or some translations say there, be fervent in the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Be fervent in the Holy Spirit. He continues, he says, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Okay, so what we see here in these first couple of verses is that in light of the gospel, in light of presenting our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice and, and not being conformed to the world, but renewing our minds, what this practically means in terms of boots on the ground or everyday life and community is this. You and I are supposed to love each other. And that love should be genuine and authentic and it should even have a, a familial sense to it, meaning that it, it should have that same kind of feel and that same kind of flavor that a healthy family has. In fact, commentator Douglas Moose summarized this section like this. He said, as a spiritual family, the church is to exhibit the intimacy and tenderness toward one another that mark the best earthly families. And so again, what Paul is saying here is that that same love, that same tenderness, that same willingness to forgive that exists in a healthy uh, earthly family should also exist in our spiritual family as well. However, though, that's not all Paul says. In verse 14, he goes on, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. 
but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that list, uh, it, it feels almost impossible. <laughs> I mean, who can actually do those things perfectly all of the time? Well, I agree with Tim Keller when he wrote this. He says, this call is not for the faint of heart. Who has ever been strong and loving enough to follow this pattern? Of course, it is Jesus himself. When he died on the cross by responding to the mocking with respect, to cruelty with love, to cursing with blessing, to evil with forgiveness and good, in that very act, he overcame the evil. You know, several years ago, my wife Faith and I went through one of the most painful seasons of our life. And it mostly revolved around one couple who we were friends with. And it's a complicated situation, but long story short, the friendship fell apart, and it did so in a fairly dramatic way. And I know that there are always two sides to every story, and I also know that Faith and I were not perfect, and that there were things that we did that, that were hurtful to this couple, couple. However, though, we also were deeply, deeply hurt by them. Not only did they cut off the relationship and wanted nothing to do with us, by far the most painful part was that we found out months later that they were saying all kinds of slandering and untrue things about us to people we were friends with. And I do think that there is a time and a place to stick up for yourself and to defend yourself against false accusations, but for various reasons, Faith and I felt like we were supposed to not do that at that time. And I remember this one particularly hard day and, and Faith and I were standing in our basement of our old house and, and she just had tears streaming down her face. And, and through the tears, she, she started to say things like this. She said, who can just sit there and let people slander you? Or who can just stand there and let people say all kinds of things about you that aren't true? I mean, who can do that? And as she was saying those questions, all of a sudden she stopped because in that moment, with those questions hanging over her, the Lord spoke to her and he said, well, I did. And in that moment, as she thought about that and even remembered all that Jesus went through throughout his ministry and specifically at his trial and crucifixion, she was able in that moment to let go a little bit. She was able to allow that, that healing presence of the Lord uh, move into her and begin to help her walk down the path of forgiveness and healing. And I wish that I could stand up here and tell you that everything's great now with this couple and that we're close again, but that's simply not the case. Faith and I made attempts to apologize and to reconcile the relationship, and we were both shut down. In fact, I just found out the other day that the husband was talking to a group of people, one of which I'm friends with, and he took something that I, I wrote in an apology letter, letter to him years ago, and he took this one sentence out of it that I wrote, and he completely twisted it around to mean the exact opposite of what I actually said. And of course, when I found out about it, it was difficult. And after years of walking through forgiveness for the stuff that happened a long time ago, but finally getting to that place where I thought I'd finally forgiven them, now there's something new to forgive. However, though, as I think back through the things I shared last week, 
And as I come back to these commands and these marks of a mature and godly Christian in Romans 12, I remind myself, and I was doing this this week, okay, I need to bless them and not curse them. I need to not be proud or wise in my own eyes. Maybe there's still more that I need to apologize for. Maybe there's more that I don't see. I need to make sure that I'm repaying no one evil for evil. I need to not be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. And so, Lord, are there any opportunities that I, that I might have that might be available where I could bless them or do good to them? Along with that, I need to just keep reminding myself, as far as it depends on me, live at peace with them. And so, Lord, is there anything else I, I need to do or I need to try in order to be reconciled to them? If not, Lord, help me to remind myself that vengeance is not mine, that the Lord sees and the Lord knows this situation, and one day the truth of it will be revealed. And so until then, I just need to trust and to believe in the justice of God. And look, I know that I'm not living out these marks perfectly, not in this situation and not in a bunch of situations in my life. And you probably aren't either, if I had to guess. And so we may not live out these marks perfectly, but I wholeheartedly believe that you and I can and we should because of the power of the gospel and because of the power of the Holy Spirit begin to take steps towards becoming the kind of people and the kind of community that is described here. And so I want to pray for us. I, I know it's, you know... Um, most likely it's going to take us taking steps and discipline and, 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 and staying close to the scriptures and beginning to actually practice these things, right? But even still, let me pray for us and let me ask the Lord to make us the kind of people and to make Limworth the kind of place, the kind of community where we are living out these kinds of marks, where we are forgiving one another. I mean, I don't know if you realize it, but there's an election next year and, uh, that always stirs things up in a community of believers. And we're gonna to need to be able to love each other and extend grace to one another. And so I, I'm desperate for the Lord to work these principles into our heart. And so let's pray together. Father, we do need you, Lord. Life is so complicated. People are complicated. Lord, it would be great if we could all just live in Montana on 10,000 acres and, and just have our cows and do all of that, but that's not what at least you've called this group of people to. And so, Lord, we have to learn how to live in community with one another. We have to learn how to love and to forgive and to be reconciled to each other. Lord, please protect us from adopting the world's version of this. Help us to be the kind of people who confront and love who walk out these principles of Matthew 18, who live Romans 12, 9 to 21 daily in our lives, Lord. We need your help. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to live this out. And so, Father, would you help us? Would you please just bless this community of believers that we could become these kinds of people? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.